Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That is, with your AEW Wrestle Dream instant analysis. That's right, getting over is back once again and we are here just minutes after AEW Wrestle Dream went off the air to break down everything that happened on AEW's third pay-per-view in a six-week span. We are going to break down all of the results. Of course, we're going to analyze and give our instant reactions to them. We will also have grades for every match as well as the entire AEW Wrestle Dream show. Before we get into any of that off the top, allow me to remind you that the Getting Over Wrestling podcast is all about So please don't forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Also, remember to follow us on Twitter at GettingOverCast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. But you also, if you follow us on Twitter at GettingOverCast, have the opportunity to vote in these pre- and post-show polls that help conclude all of these instant analysis podcast episodes. A ton of you did it Saturday for NXT No Mercy. Do not miss that instant analysis. It is in your feed right now. And of course, we got a ton of people voting in tonight's poll for AEW Wrestle Dream. Next week, of course, WWE Fastlane. We will talk about the show schedule at the end of this episode. Normally, this is the time where I would welcome in vintage Chris Vanini, crack a cold one, lean back in the chair and get ready to break down this entire pay-per-view for you. Unfortunately, Chris had a previously scheduled concert to go to tonight, uh, well before I think this pay-per-view was even announced. So he is not here, therefore I cannot crack open a cold one, otherwise it would get warm since I need to talk throughout this entire episode. I did want to note off the top before we get into the incident analysis, I did the match breakdowns a little bit differently tonight, simply due to number one, how much was on this card, Number two, my work schedule, and just to be candid, how thrown together some of this was, it didn't feel like it necessitated a full detailed breakdown. So we're going to spend a lot of time on what's most important, and then we're going to cover the rest. So let's not waste any more time here off the top. Let's get into our AEW Wrestle Dream instant analysis. Now, even though we are going to start with the main event of the show, we are not necessarily going in reverse order. We're doing it based on pretty much how I feel like it, but what I think makes the most sense in presenting this to you. But as I said, let's start with the main event. The TNT Championship was on the line, Christian Cage against Darby Allen in a two out of three falls match. So on the countdown show that aired, I think Friday night, this was announced as the main event, which told you everything you needed to know about what was going to happen here. So we got a solid video package on Collision as well. Christian entered first, he sent Luchasaurus back. Darby actually wore a stylish jacket besides his normal like street punk gear. Uh, Darby pulled Christian's turtleneck over his head, then dragged him into the middle of the ring for a jackknife cover and a pinfall five minutes into the match. Commentary correctly pointed out this was the third pinfall victory over Christian for him in a matter of weeks. Darby hit a code red as part of a series of near falls. Nick Wayne's mom drew Christian over uh, the barricade and threw water in his face. Darby hit his bullet tope suicida and a standing coffin drop outside. Christian blocked the coffin drop inside with his knees. He pounced Darby off the apron. He did basically a long jump. He should go to the Olympics uh, into the announce table. Christian positioned the steel steps by the apron, and I think he was supposed to vertical suplex Darby 
over the ropes into the you know stairs, the spike part of the steel steps. Instead, he did it onto the floor. Then he went to the floor and did a vertical suplex into the stairs from the floor. Then he put him back on the apron and threw him off the apron into the steps. So I think they messed it up, but I'm not totally sure. Anyway, uh, the first one was protected well. The second one was dangerous as shit, which is why you just do not do moves like these. But it led to Christian winning his first fall by countout 15 minutes into the match. As Darby got checked by medical and wheeled out on a stretcher, Christian untied the ring mat. He tore up the padding and exposed all the wood planks underneath. It was the slowest that I've ever seen EMTs move to get someone on a stretcher and out because Christian had plenty of time to not only pull all this stuff up, but climb the top rope, hit a frog splash onto Darby, who was on the stretcher. Christian then hit kill switch on the wood for a false finish. Darby dodged a spear, but took a sharpshooter, then came back with a scorpion death drop and a coffin drop. That was for a false finish. Christian then hit a sunset flip powerbomb only to spear the referee when Allen ducked away. So Christian low blowed him and grabbed the TNT title. Nick stole it and ran away, standing next to Darby, who directed him to use it on Christian. The setup was obvious. Nick turned and drilled Darby with the title that upset his mom, of course. The referee then slow counted one, two, three, with Christian Cage retaining the TNT championship in a 25-minute main event. Uh, They basically embraced and Christian kissed him on the head, Nick, after the bell. Christian held Darby for Nick to beat down. Sting like sauntered down to the ring without any music. He easily took all three guys out, or all two guys out, I should say. Luchasaurus then came down so the heels could get the odds on him. Christian set up Sting for a concerto when suddenly the lights turned out and we got an entire like cinematic entrance of a muscle car driving over the words rated R written in a street. There was also a stadium with fireworks going off. Uh, And then suddenly Adam Copeland Edge makes his debut in AEW with an almost identical WWE entrance. It said, instead of you think you know me, you think you know him, smoke, fireworks, the same song, Metalingus, everything. Slightly different voice on the intro. That was really the only change. And this, by the way, this whole huge cinematic entrance is in the middle of a beatdown, right in the squared circle. He went right up to Christian in the ring. He took the chair. He looked ready to hit Concerto, only to hit Nick with the steel chair, throw it at Luchasaurus. He speared Nick. And then I think he speared Luchasaurus into a chair that was in the ring. Taz called him the rated R superstar, Adam Copeland. Actually, he called him the rated R stuperstar, Adam Copeland. Uh, But then Edge basically shook hands with Darby and Sting and Wrestle Dream went off the air. So let's quickly go on the match because obviously what you guys want to talk about or want to hear about is Edge. But for the match, perfection from a storytelling perspective. The Nick Wayne turn was blatantly obvious. They've been building to it from him being angry at how Darby handled the AR Fox turn to seemingly only getting his back somewhat reluctantly due to their past ties, not really believing in what he was telling him anymore. The stare sequence was absurd and it just should not have been allowed. Way too dangerous. But other than that, I loved the quick opening fall. I really liked the countout concept. Christian still hasn't defeated Darby clean, quote unquote, and there will eventually be a huge payoff when Darby takes the title off of him. Christian also worked extremely well in this match. He deserves a lot of credit. The grade here is really tough. I'm probably going to say 4.25 stars and an A, certainly not an A+. Feels better than an A minus, which is a baseline grade for when something's excellent. This was beyond excellent, but clearly I had my issues with it. Now, on to Copeland, and we're just going to call him Edge for tonight. 
I was honestly floored that WWE had Edge trademarked, but not rated our superstar. So I looked into it. And that's one of the reasons that this show was delayed on Sunday night. You guys know I usually do it right after the pay-per-views end. But I wanted to get the right information for you. So the deal is, WWE tried to trademark Rated R Superstar, but because Rated R belongs to the MPAA, the Motion Picture Association of America, and Superstar was not enough of a modifier, the US Patent Office basically denied it. So it can't be trademarked. AEW is using it. They're putting it on shirts that they can do that. WWE can do it. But there are certain situations in which you can't use it, um, like video games, licensing, things like that. So that is why Rated R Superstar was available. It is why he is called that. And it is why AEW is using it. If you see people out there suggesting WWE made some blunder or mistake, no, they did not. But this is exactly why WWE changes people's names because they've learned lessons like this, which dates all the way back to the Attitude Era. Now, back to what actually happened here. Keeping Edge's entire presentation was smart. Metalingus is a real song, so WWE had no rights to it. And having that on top of Edge debuting, it really made for an impactful showing. Obviously, the pacing of this with the heels just waiting around with their thumbs up their asses and Edge doing his entire entrance while someone is about to get murdered, that's immensely silly. But this is professional wrestling that we're talking about. What's more interesting than Edge's debut, and we will talk about it a little bit more, but it's the circumstances surrounding it. I'm really curious how long this was planned. Did Edge know he was going to AEW around the Sheamus match or even earlier than that? That was under two weeks before All In. Was Edge maybe unsure and perhaps considering staying in WWE or retiring, but Tony Khan perhaps upped the financial offer after the CM Punk situation because he wanted to find a way to replace the WWE star power and lure fans in. Now, I'm told Edge is going to be doing media on Monday, so we should not have to wait that long for some of these answers. In terms of the decision, when he had the Sheamus match on SmackDown, I believe it was August 18th, if you told me then that he would be in AEW a month later or two months later, I would have legitimately been shocked. I'd have told you that Edge is a WWE lifer. He already turned down AEW once, and at age 49, it just didn't make sense for him to go over there. Obviously, this leaked its way out over the last couple of weeks, and therefore the shock factor wasn't really there in the moment. Plus, the way they set it up, it was just like you were literally waiting for it to happen. But I am still a little bit surprised at the decision on his part, though it completely depends, of course, on what WWE was offering, what he signed for with AEW, and what the plans are for him in AEW. Because look, let's not get it twisted, right? This is another 50-year-old former WWE superstar signed by AEW. Edge, and I've said this on the podcast before, he did not move the needle for WWE any longer. But he will get eyeballs on AEW for the surprise factor, for the situation of him just being in WWE. By the way, he went out with a win. Um, and showing up in AEW and it being different and another big name star that they've taken. So not moving the needle in WWE does not mean he won't move the needle in AEW, but that does mean he might've had a different value to WWE than he does with AEW. Because WWE, when they're considering it, it's okay. What is he doing for us from a business standpoint, number one? 
And number two, if we don't pay him X and he goes over to AEW, how much will that help them? And will that in turn hurt us? Again, he may have made this decision no matter what the money offer was from WWE. Or perhaps they didn't offer him enough. AEW did, and it made it a no-brainer for him. What the question is going to be is how long his momentum lasts in AEW, whether they truly capitalize on it, whether they can maintain a high level of ratings beyond this Wednesday, which will definitely crack 1 million. The other question is how Edge's body is going to hold up. He was injured multiple times wrestling a very, very light schedule in WWE. We see how frequently Christian wrestles, how frequently some of these other older wrestlers are in the ring. If he doesn't have that kind of schedule, then it obviously shouldn't be too big of an issue. But let's not forget how many times he got hurt while he was in WWE and serious long-term injuries too. I'm not saying years, but he had one that was nine months. He had another that was three months, another that was, I think, six months. No, that's wrong. He had one that was nine, one, one that was three. I think that's it. But again, for a limited number of matches, he had two injuries that were pretty significant. But again, let me repeat, this is going to be an immediate boost for AEW. And if they do wind up getting, let's say, Mercedes Monet coming in, whether temporary or full time, maybe Dolph Ziggler comes in as well. That's almost assured. It can be a one, two punch or a one, two, three punch like what they had with Brian Danielson and Adam Cole a couple of years ago. Now, Dolph Ziggler will probably be a much shorter and shorter pop. Um, Mercedes will certainly be a much larger one. She's a significant fan base. So it's really the Edge and Mercedes deal if they do that. But it certainly feels like AEW is about to go through that process where, you know, they had the Danielson and Cole and CM Punk, and it's been a while since that happened. And things have, I'm not saying that they're cold. They're not, although ticket sales aren't great, but they're still selling a ton of pay-per-views. They're going to get a new TV deal coming up soon. So what happens when they add these names? Does this usher in, Tony Khan's been promoting this as a new era, does it? Does it actually put them consistently over, let's call it 900,000 viewers or approaching a million viewers every single week? Do their pay-per-view buys go from whatever number they're at? Do they add another 25 or 50,000 every single show? Are they going to increase the pay-per-views like it seems they are and go to 10 or 12 per year? And if so, are people going to shell out $50 for every single one of them? We just did it for three, you know, three times in a six-week period. I can tell you I will not do that. Like even as someone has who has a podcast, I will not keep doing this. Uh, it's a certain period of time and, and a very special situation. So there's a lot of questions up in the air right now. But what I will tell you is this. Watching Edge show up in AEW was massive for that company. The pop was enormous. There were only like 6,000 people in that arena. It sounded like there were 12,000. And again, taking the entrance shot for shot with the smoke, the pyro, the hand gestures, literally like 1% different. That is the best way to introduce someone of this caliber. Let me make one more point. And this is actually about WWE. Edge basically put over nobody in WWE other than Roman Reigns and Seth Rollins, two guys who did not need it during this last run. That's not on him. Let me be clear. That's on WWE. That's on creative. He could have elevated Finn Balor in that Hell in a Cell match. They chose not to have him do that. They could have made his last match against a younger superstar, someone other than, you know, Sheamus. And had they done that, whether it was an Austin Theory, a Carmelo Hayes, a Grayson Waller, I mean, I could keep listing names here, but 
they could have done something like that where they used his star power to get someone else over on his way out. Instead, I'm not going to say WWE wasted Edge on this run, but they definitely did not utilize him to help the future of their business. There was no foresight in the way Edge was booked in WWE during this run. And that's disappointing because you can bet your ass that MJF is going to beat Edge probably sooner than later. Maybe Jay White will, maybe Kenny Omega will. And I know Kenny is not necessarily young, quote unquote, but still, these are people who can be elevated from fighting him. So yeah, I think it's frustrating the way WWE used Edge. Maybe he was frustrated with the way WWE used Edge, but on one night, first appearance, you know, solo, maybe two run, I'll call it, two run home run, and we will see what's coming up with Edge Adam Copeland uh, this week on Dynamite and certainly going forward in AEW. We'll bring it to you right here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. With that, let's continue with the rest of the AEW Wrestle Dream Instant Analysis. We had Brian Danielson against Zack Sabre Jr. Sabre cut a promo on Danielson during Rampage. No major takeaway from it. He was also on commentary, really biting Brian hard during this eight-man match that they had on Collision. Uh, it was Danielson, Wheeler, Yuta, and FTR against Ricky Starks, Big Bill, and Aussie Open. Decent but long and kind of convoluted match. The finish came as Big Bill put Harwood in a choke slam with Starks spearing him for the win. So my presumption here was that they would be the next challengers, Ricky Starks and Big Bill, before FTR defends the titles against the winners of the number one contendership match that were on WrestleDream. There was also a quick Danielson-Saber confrontation after the bell. It got the job done to create animosity before the match that didn't exist on TV otherwise before we got to WrestleDream. So John Moxley was on commentary for the third of three times on this show in this match. It was obviously heavy on the technical wrestling that was the entire point. Saber went after the injured right arm and the right hand extensively. Brian came back with a dragon screw where Zach's leg like barely moved. It looked like he destroyed his knee. Great selling. Danielson delivered a great head kick and then kicked his fucking head. And it's kind of cool that I can say that as a move name. Uh, there were two strong counter sequences with a brief cattle mutilation. Saber got Brian in the butterfly and went right after the right arm. So Brian went back with the injured knee. This continued in various forms. Saber hit a tilt-a-whirl Mishinoku driver, then got him fully in the butterfly with Nigel cheering for Saber and Mox cheering for Brian. Danielson escaped a ton of arm submissions and hit a regalplex, following with a psycho knee for the false finish. So he hit another one for the one, two, three in 23 minutes. Saber refused to shake his hand after the bell. Nigel claimed that since Brian hit a non-technical move, Zach was still the best technical wrestler in the world. Danielson, after the bell, raised Aubrey Edwards' arm. She's also a Washington native. Then AEW promoted a video game type of thing with Demetrius Johnson and Kenny Omega. Mox got confused, I guess not knowing the situation, thinking that Mighty Mouse was going to have a fight on Dynamite. And he's like, oh, I can't wait for that. And then when commentary clarified it for him, he's like, all right, I should go. I've clearly outstayed my welcome, which was hysterical. Anyway, as far as the match goes, holy shit. Not my words, that was Mox's immediate reaction and review. This was an exceptional match. Everything you could want and more out of these two. Carmelo Hayes against Ilya Dragunov on Saturday was not technical like this, but the sheer violence and the selling, that is worthy of comparison between the two. Extremely different matches, of, co of course, other than that. You're simply not going to see many wrestlers in America put on a technical wrestling clinic like Danielson and Sabre did. Forget America. Sabre's not even from America. You're not going to see it 
to that level probably anywhere in the world other than in this match that we got here. The technical aspects were great, but so were the in-ring psychology and the storytelling. All of it hit. I saw someone prominent call this a legendary match. That's a massive exaggeration. But it was a masterclass in what matches like these can be. It was an extremely high-quality technical wrestling match that didn't have a storyline going in or really coming out unless they run this back with a submission match. But still, it didn't really have a storyline other than being a, quote, dream match. You also had the finish come in a way that was wholly appropriate, but also rather sudden. They spent so much time on the mat, yet they stood up and just did this really quick sequence to end it. So for me, it's no doubt an A-plus match. I usually don't give something five stars unless it hits me immediately when it's over. That's a five-star match. And this did not. I'm at 4.75 stars and an A+. Outstanding stuff from bell to bell. I will go back and watch this a second time. I could definitely see myself upgrading it, but that's where we are for now. I think the last match that I gave an A+, that I upgraded, may have been the Becky Lynch and Trish Stratus, and this is completely different from that. Um, But I could see rewatching it and going five. It just was in the moment. It didn't hit me as that. And usually if it doesn't hit me in the moment, I don't go there. Commentary, a little bit strange, I should note. I loved hearing Mox's expertise, but he rambled at times while both doing color commentary and calling out individual moves. Then you had Nigel going full heel, but no one was playing off of him. Like Mox was supposed to be the babyface counter, but he never countered him. He just kept talking to himself basically about what was happening in the match. The entire point of going heel on commentary is to have either the play-by-play man or another colored dude basically combat at you. And Nigel was just like in this own silo by himself. Then you had Excalibur trying to get all his stuff in. It actually got way, way better as the match went on, but it was clunky for a lot of it. Oh, Jim Ross was there also, but he barely spoke. That was probably a positive. But regardless, exceptional match. In my opinion, the match of the night by a significant margin. Terrific stuff. Can't wait to see it again. I am quite sure we will get Brian and Sabre a second time down the line. Hangman Page against Swerve Strickland. So Swerve was the hometown face here. Hangman hit a bunch of signatures plus a pop-up Liger bomb in a really nice spot. He dominated the early part of this match. Swerve finally came back with a rolling flatliner, moved into a brain buster, plus a hanging double stomp and a house call. Hangman hit dead eye on top of the steel steps. There was a really smart spot over the ropes where Swerve kept like splitting the distance to prevent a buckshot lariat. Swerve then snapped Page's arm in a butterfly submission with trainers helping sell it as an excuse. Swerve caught Hangman with a double stomp off the ropes on the ring apron, hit a 450 onto the injured arm. That was a false finish. Swerve then locked in an arm bar for a rope break. Hangman avoided the double stomp and hit a buckshot lariat, but he sold the arm he was unable to cover. When he eventually did, Prince Nana clearly put Swerve's boot on the rope and got ejected but Nana continued distracting the referee rather than leaving. That allowed Swerve to intercept a buckshot with Nana's crown. That was a false finish. So Swerve hit two house calls in the JML driver for the win in 20 minutes to a huge hometown pop. This was at the halfway point of the show. Easily the match of the night, not even close. There was a strong story with the injury cells. I really appreciated that the crown was used to get the advantage rather than get the win. So many times, we see a weapon quickly used. We actually kind of saw it in the main event with the with the belt when they used it. 
A weapon gets used and that's the finish of the match. Now that I think about it, the belt ending that match, even though I know Darby got the absolute shit kicked out of him, it was actually inconsistent because on AEW TV over the last couple of weeks, there have been multiple belt shots and matches where people kick out immediately afterward. I think Britt Baker did one of them and there was one this Wednesday on Dynamite. So a little inconsistent there, but in this situation, or I should say in that situation in the main event, he got the shit kicked out of him. So it made sense for it to be like, the end of the situation, the end of the match. Again, here though, what I appreciated was the crown was not used in that way. What it was used for is to put Hangman in a situation where he could not stop Swerve from doing what was necessary to finish him in the match. Hangman was kept strong. He took two signatures and one of Swerve's finishes after the fact. Swerve winning was the right call. We said this on the Ultimate Preview. He would be a great challenger for this babyface version of MJF. Could I see him taking the title off MJF? I mean, I would love it. I don't think that's going to happen, no, but you could definitely make him a big-time challenger at a pay-per-view, no question about it. The goal here, going forward, should be to push Swerve strong while moving Hangman immediately into something he can sink his teeth into, not hiding him in the trio scene, which makes the fact that they're the ROH trio's champions, six-man champions, uh, the elite or the hung bucks, massively confusing for me. But back to this match. So this gets a 4.25 stars and an A from me. It would have been five if, of course, we didn't get the distraction finish. A couple other moments earlier in the match that brought it down. But you got to remember the difference between 4.25 and 4.5. It's basically nothing. It's just my grade. Uh, This was exceptional. Second or third best match on the show, depending what you thought about the main event. This pairing, Swerve and Hangman could absolutely be in a world championship feud in AEW someday. This was a star-making moment for Swerve in front of his home crowd. Let's hope they capitalize on it. Chris Jericho and the Golden Lovers fought the Don Callis family. Kenny Omega and Jericho fought Gates of Agony on Collision. The faces backstage agreed to have each other's back and learn to work together after a career of being rivals. Prince Nana met with Don Callis backstage, presumably to game plan. It didn't result in anything. Omega hit a V-trigger and a really rough Tope Con Hero. He just landed on his back. Then Jericho won with a Lion Tamer. The faces cut promos that didn't advance much, but Omega had a line about realizing Callus was shit based on what they did recently in Japan. It was fun to see them together uh, after all these years, Jericho and Omega. Quickly, before we get into the Wrestle Dream match, kayfabe got broken in a major way over the weekend. There were fan photos from Japan that showed Omega as the cameraman for that Callis Takeshka video that they aired on TV. Shit happens, you can't win them all, but it popped me that kayfabe got broken that hard in something like this. Anyway, let's get to the match. Fans chanted, fuck you Callis, before the bell. The heels had a fun four-way leverage move reaching out of the ring all the way to Callis like a grapevine uh, in a submission attempt. The faces repeated it in their corner moments later. The Golden Lovers did their moonsault sequence with Jericho hitting a lion salt on Sammy Guevara. Omega and Kota Ibushi ate consecutive German suplexes where they looked like they landed on their heads. It made me gasp for sure. Especially Omega's, we know Kota Ibushi has an unbreakable neck, so we never have to worry about him. Jericho took a Spanish fly from Sammy, who immediately jumped up for a shooting star press outside on Omega. There was just straight up no tagging with all six guys fighting for an extremely long period. Jericho and Guevara were the legal men for what seemed like, I mean, I don't know how long the match was off the top of my head, but (laughs) 
three quarters of the match, or at least the second half of the match. They were legal the entire time. That is how few tags there were here. Um, Abushi and Takeshka had a great little sequence. Osprey countered a one-winged angel into a Hurakarana outside and a Sky Twister chaser. Uh, Osprey saved Guevara by eating Judas Effect and then grabbed the referee's arm to prevent a cover. He also distracted so Callus could use the bat on Jericho. Osprey was then somehow able to keep a hold of Omega and Ibushi simultaneously as Jericho got pinned by Guevara. I was really mixed on this one. Some of the sequences were phenomenal because all these guys are really talented. The finish was really repetitive. It was kind of an eye-roll weapon interference, and we still have not been given much reason as to why Osprey would care to help Callus, let alone Callus Guevara, this extensively. There wasn't much of a match story either, though again, there were so many fun individual moments, including Abushi and Jericho like posing together at one point. This one's tough. Uh, I'm gonna go 3.75 stars B plus. Overbooked in the finish, extremely similar to All In, not much selling at all. Best wrestler in the match, got the least time to shine. Credit to Jericho for keeping up with all of them. The ROH Tag Team Championship was on the line. It was supposed to be better than New Bay Bay against The Righteous. It was instead a handicap match, MJF against The Righteous. On Rampage, The Righteous beat a couple jobbers in a squash. On Collision, they got another vignette and beat another pair of jobbers. Vincent called MJF a devil and a puppeteer with Adam Cole as his puppet. Then they put a 4 by 4 between a jobber's ankles and slammed one of them with a chair. None of this was for me. Uh, this opened Wrestle Dream. MJF cut a promo saying Cole was not there and he was not the man under the devil mask who attacked Jay White. He said it was stolen from his locker. He also talked shit and got the crowd going. Part of the match story was MJF going to tag only to long for Cole, who of course wasn't there. The heels hit uh, death from above and acid drop for nothing. There was an Eddie Guerrero weapon spot with MJF grabbing Vincent's nuts and he body slammed Dutch and shoved Vincent's face between his legs as he promised in the promo for a pop. Then he hit Heat Seeker on Dutch with his feet on the ropes to retain the titles in nine minutes. This was one of AEW's best, and I'm putting that in quotes, referees. He not only didn't care about the tag rules, he allowed MJF to be double teamed the entire match. It was fun, okay? It was fan service in parts, but it was a mediocre match at best. What was the point of shoving these guys down our throats for weeks? All those vignettes, the teasing of angles maybe, for this match, I know plans were changed. It was supposed to be MJF and Cole, and Cole got injured. I get it. Would have been different. Probably would not have been that much better. I kept expecting something else to come out of this. They kept mentioning the devil and the attack. They showed it in the pre-show, the zero-hour show. They showed it before this match. It was like they were trying to tell us something, except they didn't. Not here, nor any part on the show. I went 2.5 stars and a C. The ROH and NJPW uh, strong openweight titles were both on the line. Eddie Kingston against Katsuyori Shibata. On Rampage, Kingston beat Rocky Romero via submission. Shibata showed him respect after the bell. That was about it. Uh, in terms of this match, this was pure strong style as you would expect. Oh, we got two big meaty men bumping me tonight. I mean, Shibata's not that meaty, but nevertheless, it counts. Uh, Shibata put Kingston in a great iron octopus hold with Eddie overcoming a knockout with a rope break. There were a ton of back fists from Kingston, plus a Northern Lights bomb and a power bomb with a stack cover for the win in 10 minutes. They shook hands in respect after the bell and Eddie left the ring so Shibata could be cheered, classy as always. This was a blast, really strong win for Kingston in his first title defense. Cannot get enough of this guy. 
I wish I knew about them in a significant way before AEW. I went 3.5 stars and a B. I saw people overrating this, you know, four stars and more. It, it really just wasn't there if we're being honest, but it was fun and it was really good. Not everything has to be overly rated just because you like certain wrestlers. Let's make that clear. Uh, TBS Championship, Chris Statlander defending against Julia Hart. Uh, Julia fought Vert Vixen on collision. She had a moonsault to win in three minutes. She called Chris out after the bell for a 30-second stare down. Stat then grabbed the mic and called herself the defeater of the undefeated. There's such a lack of care for the women's division that Julia wrestled on four of five TV shows over the last two weeks. So yeah, we got the match. Uh, Stat carried Hart on her shoulders up the steps when Brody King distracted. That led to Stat injuring her ribs. He later tried to shake her confidence as Hart tried to surprise her with black mist. But Stat, in a really smart spot, smacked her across the face with the mist spilling out. Then she had a spinning bomb. Uh, Julia hit the spider suplex and Stat like fell into place for a moonsault, but got her foot on the rope really late. She had to shift her body to do it. Stat actually got booed here which just tells you that Julia's gimmick is really working. She put in Heartless, but Stat rolled over, lifted her onto her shoulders, hit a tombstone pile driver, and then Sunday Night Fever for the win in about nine minutes. This started immensely slow and clunky, but it picked up significantly in the finish here. There were too many odd moments to give it a high grade, but it was highly enjoyable, and Julia did really well in the biggest match of her career. She's 21 years old, did not look like it at all in this spot. Now let's see if AEW continues featuring her because that has generally been the problem when someone is given a short-term push and then forgotten once beaten. I went 3.25 stars in a B, but this was good. This was fun. The Young Bucks fought the Lucha Brothers, the Guns, and Hook and Orange Cassidy in a AEW Tag Team Championship number one contenders match on the same show that there was an AEW tag team title match. Exactly the match you would expect. Ray Phoenix got hurt early. Hook blind tagged as Pentagon did a Topic on Hero outside. Cassidy hit orange punch on Austin Gunn, who tagged out while in red rum. Nick Jackson hit a 450 to break the submission. There was a combination like Gory Bomb Fear Factor with a Jackson doing a double stomp off the ropes as the trigger. Then the Bucks hit BTE trigger on Pentagon for the win. So look, listeners of this show no, nothing about this was for me. From the choreography to the lack of tagging, to Pentagon taking the fall, to the Bucks winning yet another number one contendership, particularly given they just became the ROH six-man champions. They were the least interesting possible winners by a significant margin in this match, though I was glad that Hook and OC were not hot-shotted just because they only recently became a team. I thought at first it might have been a booking change due to Phoenix's injury, but the way the finish went down, it was clearly the plan. There were a bunch of botches here. Obviously, Phoenix got injured. It, it just really wasn't good. I, I'm, I'm at three stars and a B minus for this match. Uh, the Bucks winning made me hope Aussie Open would take the titles as I could not imagine rematching the FTR feud this quickly. The Guns were the best part of the match and had a really fun spot where they tried to pin themselves to get the win. More than anything, I hope Phoenix is okay. It feels like I've said that once every three months for the last three years. His style is obviously not conducive to staying healthy, but it feels like every time there's something going for him, he gets hurt. I'm curious to see what happens with the international title if he's hurt. They could do another tournament, strap mocks up and get back on track. But yeah, this just was one of the weaker things on the entire show. 
We'll move to the AEW Tag Team Championship match. FTR defending against Aussie Open. The challengers hit the Aussie Arrow assisted cutter for a false finish. Dax Harwood hit the slingshot Liger Bomb. The Aussies then hit a kick variation of a doomsday device. FTR hit their superplex splash combo with Kyle Fletcher breaking the count with a crossbody on Dax into the fall. The Aussies hit half a shatter machine plus their finisher for a broken fall. FTR came back with a spike pile driver on the apron, then caught Fletcher flying off the ropes for a super shatter machine to retain the titles in 21 minutes. After so many fake tag team matches on the show, it was great to see one that actually abided by the rules. Mark Davis was, for me, the standout as the hoss in the match. Unfortunately, he appeared to legitimately hurt his wrist here. AEW, they make grading matches tough sometimes because compared to the six-man, which immediately preceded this, this was boring. It was. But in a vacuum, there was some really high-quality tag team wrestling here. It didn't strike my fancy. I know others will like it more than I did, but I'm at 3.5 stars and a B. Uh, Ricky Starks fought Wheeler Yuta. John Moxley was on commentary here. Big Bill came down about midway through. There was some good mat wrestling and semi-strong style. There was a ridiculous spot with Yuta barely pushing Bill, who ran himself into the ring post. This was after he failed to catch Starks flying off the apron. Starks eventually hit a spear and Rochambeau for the win in nine minutes. This was way more clunky than I thought it should have been. And it was one of a number of matches on this card that for me felt like a dynamite match on a pay-per-view. I went three stars and a B minus. I'm kind of in retrospect thinking otherwise. Maybe I'll go a little bit lower, but we'll stick with that for now. Mox was also on commentary for this match. He was way better here than he was in the other match. He was probably the best part of this entire segment, if I'm being honest. Now we'll go through the zero hour matches. I don't have any grades for these because for me, none of them were better than a C and I didn't feel like you know, doing that. Also, my breakdowns are relatively short. Uh, Josh Barnett fought Claudio Castagnoli. This was built through a dual promo package on Collision 24 hours before the pay-per-view. Barnett was called Antonio Inoki's pupil to explain the match booking. This was a strong style mat wrestling match where the guys just went at each other for eight minutes. Moxley was on commentary here as well. He put them both over. Barnett grabbed a mic and put Claudio over huge with high praise, saying Antonio Inoki would approve but he wanted to fight him again. This was massively like over the top by Barnett, but I'm sure they're going to fight probably at Bloodsport on WrestleMania weekend. It just felt really forced to me in the post-match. I understand that Barnett is an Inoki student. That's cool that you wanted to get him on this show. Build the storyline and make the match matter. They didn't do that. Therefore, I didn't really care. That said, there was some good meat slapping in this match. Big meaty man slapping meat. <laughs> Nick Wayne fought Luchasaurus. This got added to the card late. Wayne cut a surprisingly decent promo on Rampage to build it, but it wasn't anything notable. Nick's mom was in the crowd. He got chokeslammed over the ropes onto the ring apron. Wayne hit a moonsault for a 3.1 late kickout, only to eat a lariat to the back of the head to end it. Luchasaurus was definitely the necessary winner here. The match was nothing special. But I do question if Nick Wayne was joining Christian, why did he fight his quote unquote like brother in this group that they have earlier in the show? Did Christian change his mind during the show? Like, how does that make sense? It doesn't really compute. So lack of continuity there for now. Let's see if they explain it on Wednesday. The trios titles were on the line. The acclaimed in Billy Gunn against TMDK on Rampage. The trios titles were on the line as the acclaimed in Billy Gunn fought the Hardys and Isaiah Cassidy. Claimed it their new finisher on Cassidy for the win. 
uh, formulaic babyface on babyface match, fun for the crowd. Then this trio's title match got announced randomly out of nowhere with no build. Uh, this was easily the best match on the pre-show, to be fair, just purely from an action and entertainment standpoint. Max Caster made Slapjack and a Retribution reference for Shane Thorne and acclaimed one with their original finishing sequence, which is just better for them. Uh, Satoshi Kojima, Keith Lee, Athena, and Billy Starks fought Shane Taylor, Lee Moriarty, Mercedes Martinez, and Diamante. Athena hit Moriarty with O-Face, Lee and Kojima, then followed with their finishers for the babyface win in six minutes. I have to assume Athena turned face at some point because last I saw her, she was a heel. I have no idea why this was on the show, nor do I know when it was announced. Total surprise to me. Maybe I accidentally fast forwarded through a segment on DVR, but even still, I mean, why was this on the show? Uh, now we asked on the ultimate preview, how exactly Wrestle Dream was going to honor Antonio Inoki. So Tony Khan opened Zero Hour, the first thing we saw, screaming into a microphone during this in-ring ceremony that had Anoki's grandchildren, Shibata, and Rocky standing there. They cut away at the end of it to show Christian watching because, you know, he talks shit about dead people. I personally found it massively distasteful given this whole thing was supposed to be honoring him that they go and like, quote unquote, turn it into an angle or play it into an angle at the end. It did not work for me. But beyond that, if you're going to do a show honoring someone, there has to be like meaning to it. And doing this when the fewest people are watching and then the Anoki student in Josh Barnett in the same zero hour kickoff show situation, really all they had outside of having a couple Japanese wrestlers on the show was the Eddie Kingston Katsuri Shibata match, which honored him. Sure, I guess because they both liked him. But how did that play into any of this? Was there a charitable donation? Was the name Wrestle Dream off something he said? I, I just, it seemed like an excuse to engender fan sentiment. And I don't like that. That does not sit well with me. Um, you know, it's different from like the Owen tournament where it seems like they're making a donation. They're supposed to be promoting that charity. They never really do. But Martha Hart's on TV. She gets to speak. There's, there's a lot to it. This didn't hit for me in that way. And we know that Tony Khan and AEW are charitable. What they do with Fight for the Fallen and, and some of the other things they've done, donating significant money to causes, they're great like that. This just came across, it didn't hit me right. Let me just put it that way. So that is it for AEW Wrestle Dream in terms of the breakdown, the instant analysis, all that. Let's move to the grades portion of this show. Now, on the AEW Wrestle Dream Ultimate Preview episode that we did. Both Vintage Chris Vignini and your boy here, the Silver King Adam Silverstein, we both had a pre-show expectation grade of B+. All of you, the listeners, are getting overheads on Twitter at Getting Overcast. You got a chance to vote. 16% A, 65% B, 15% C, 4% D to F. That averages out to an 85, a flat B, as flat of a B as there possibly could be. So with that, let's get to your post-show grades. We'll start with you, and then, of course, I will give mine. 47.5% uh, said this was an A, 34.3% a B, 8.1% C, and 10.1% D to F. Now, normally, we generally discount the D to F because it's like 2, 3, 4%, something like that. 
This is a significant number of D's and F's. And it shocks me because in no way could you possibly consider this to be a D or F show. Really, I don't even take a C as being a legitimate grade, but I do suppose that if you're not a technical wrestling fan and there were a lot of matches that I mentioned here, I mean, let's just count them up. Four on the pre-show that I found completely worthless. Starks, Yuta, FTR, Aussie Open, the number one contendership match. Chris Statlander and Julia Hart to a degree. MJF against the Righteous. All of those, that's nine matches. Those could have been on Dynamite or not held at all, and it really wouldn't have mattered. So when there's 14 matches on a card and nine of them are TV caliber or don't matter that much or are not at the level of being on a pay-per-view, then I could see someone saying that the show is a C. But the other five matches were exceptional or different levels of very good to exceptional. So you can't just ignore those or or reduce them because maybe you didn't like the bottom, let's call it two thirds of the card. So anyway, I gave you the percentages. Let me average that out. That averages out to an 87.5, basically an 88, which is a flat B plus. Now, I was also curious, I wanted to take away the D's and F's because again, they're really illegitimate from this total. So if I was to remove those out of this total, it still only averages out to an 89.4. So one way or another, the grade from the getting overheads, all of you listening to the show and all of you who voted on Twitter is a B plus. And I must say that giving the entire show a grade myself, I do find it pretty damn difficult because as mentioned, uh, I had an A plus match, Brian Danielson and Zack Sabre Jr. And two, what I would consider high level A matches, the main event uh, with the TNT championship, of course, and the Swerve Hangman match, plus the return of Edge, which has to factor in because you're not just averaging out the match grades, you're talking about the overall entertainment value of the show. I do have to downgrade it significantly because of the number of matches that I talked about that were just a waste of time, and, and a lot of them were on zero hour, which doesn't matter as much, but it was still a long show. A lot of the matches, like I said, could have been on TV, and that does bring down some of it, I mean, I'm right there, I think, with what your grades are, you the listeners, 89, 90, it's like splitting hairs. The show in many ways is similar to what NXT No Mercy was Saturday night. You have to remember that was like a six match card. It had two fantastic A to A plus matches. And then the other four were just lesser than, and they were matches that you could have had on Tuesday night on NXT and said, oh, okay, cool, Like that was a really good match on TV. Here, there were three high-quality matches, but instead of it being three out of six, or let's say three out of nine, it was three out of 14. So it's a much, when you're averaging it out, it's, it's a lot less, but then again, you're also considering the Edge debut. Man, this is really tough. I think I need to be at a flat 90 with Edge being the item that takes it slightly over the top because even if Edge didn't show up, that TNT Championship main event was still really damn good, even though, of course, we got the finish that we got. Uh, so yeah, I'm at a flat 90 
like nine zero point zero. <laughs> no, nothing extra, nothing more, nothing less. Uh, a minus for this show. I thought in the last two days between NXT No Mercy, AEW Wrestle Dream, back to back A minus premium live events, pay per views, whatever you want to call them. Let me just put it this way: We ate good as professional wrestling fans this weekend. Take the top five matches, okay? Becky Lynch and Tiffany Stratton, Ilya Dragunov and Carmelo Hayes, Christian against Darby Allen plus Edge, Hangman Page versus Swerve Strickland, and Brian Danielson versus Zack Sabre Jr. Watch those five matches. You are going to have an absolute blast for about two to two and a half hours of your life. I know most of you watch the show and come to listen to this after the fact. A lot of you, though, do listen to decide whether you should order it or seek out the matches or whatever the case. So that is my tip. Those five matches from this weekend, if you watch those five, it's all you need to do. It will be worth your while, no question about it. And that, folks, means it is time for us to wrap up this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, your AEW Wrestle Dream instant analysis. A quick reminder on the way out, okay? Our 500th episode was published this past week. In it, we have a sit-down interview with none other than the American Dragon, Brian Danielson. You do not want to miss that episode. Check our podcast feed and go listen to it. Also, if you did miss NXT No Mercy or you want to hear our takes on that, Saturday night, we had an NXT No Mercy instant analysis. Coming up this week on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, on Tuesday, we will have your WWE Fastlane Ultimate Preview. Surprise, on Wednesday, episode 504, a bonus interview episode right here on Getting Over. You do not want to miss it. On Thursday, we will be back with your AEW and NXT episode, all the fallout, of course, from Wrestle Dream and No Mercy on that show. And then Saturday night, as soon as WWE Fastlane goes off the air, we will have another instant analysis for you. A four-episode week coming off the back of a five-episode week. That's just what we do here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. On the way out, let's hit those reminders one more time. First, that this show is all about the five. So please leave those five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Take a little extra time, leave a five-star written review on Apple. We will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. Plus, you get to vote in our pre-show polls and our post-show polls. Again, on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Lastly, please remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or $50 for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up, you will get news posts, you will get bonus audio, and your financial contributions will help support financially the continuation of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Thanks to all of you for listening tonight, this entire week, through 502 episodes of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. If you cannot tell, the Silver King is losing his voice, so it is time for me to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.